Welcome to New Mexico in Focus, the podcast for Monday, December 12th, 2022. I'm Lou DeVizio. I hope you had a wonderful weekend. Here at New Mexico PBS, we're getting ready for the end of the year and the start of the 2023 legislative session. This Friday night at 7 o'clock on NMPBS, we're going to air a portion of a roundtable discussion on alcohol use and misuse in New Mexico. Our state leads the nation in per capita alcohol-related deaths by a significant margin, and experts say raising taxes could help solve that problem. Gene and our panel of experts will discuss what action legislators could take. That's Friday on the show. Then, next week, on the 23rd, we're focusing exclusively on the environment as Our Land senior producer Laura Paskus looks back on a historic 2022 and what we can expect in 2023 when it comes to things like fire, drought, and water availability. Then, on December 30th, we're digging in on potential legislative topics like alcohol, abortion, hydrogen, rent stabilization, and modernizing how our state legislature functions. New Mexico in Focus airs Friday nights at 7 o'clock on NMPBS. But for now, let's get right to the headlines impacting New Mexicans. Our state government is set to inherit a new multi-billion dollar financial windfall from surging oil production. Today, Monday, economists from four state agencies revised their estimates of government income. They estimate nearly $12 billion for the fiscal year running from July 2023 to June 2024. That revenue is more than $3.6 billion higher than our state's current annual spending obligations. That's a 43% increase. These numbers are hugely important because they're the basis for budget negotiations when lawmakers meet in January 2023. New Mexico in 2021 became the number two oil producer in the nation behind Texas and continued to set local production records as recently as September. New Mexico officials want to strengthen conditions for a proposed permit for the U.S. government to continue to dispose nuclear waste in the southeast corner of the state. New Mexico is demanding federal officials produce a full accounting of materials that still need to be cleaned up and shipped to the Waste Isolation Pilot Plant. The state also warned Congress that it will revoke the permit if lawmakers expand the type of waste accepted at WIP. State officials also want prioritizing waste from New Mexico as another condition in the permit. They want the federal government to submit annual reports on steps being taken to create another underground repository somewhere else in the U.S. State Environment Secretary James Kenney told the Associated Press in an interview that the proposed conditions represent more than just a wish list, but rather a framework for holding the government accountable. Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham wants New Mexico to give free school lunches to all K-12 students across the state. The governor is calling for every student to have access to free and nutritious school meals by covering the cost of breakfast and lunch for students that don't already qualify. A spokesperson for the governor confirmed that Lujan Grisham will pursue legislation in the upcoming 2023 session. The governor will release more details in early January when she sends her annual state spending recommendations to the legislature. The governor has another important decision in front of her as the new year approaches. Governor Michelle Luan Grisham must pick our state's next three public regulation commissioners before January 1st. That's after the PRC nominating committee recommended nine names for the positions. The PRC regulates utilities, telecommunications, and other industries to make sure that the public sees fair and reasonable rates, as well as reasonable and adequate services as provided by law. Our line opinion panelists for the week are Tom Garrity of the Garrity Group Public Relations, Algernon DeMassa, editor at the Deming Headlight, and Inez Russell Gomez, editorial page editor at the Santa Fe New Mexican. 
Here's Gene. Now the PRC nominating committee has sent nine names to the governor for her consideration for the new three-person public, public regulation commission. Of the nine nominated, seven live in New Mexico, five are Democrats, three are declined to state, and one nominee is a Republican. All nine have energy work experience. Now we won't get into the names of all nine nominees and kind of parse that out, but broadly first, Tom, let me start this. Is this process, the process other than the names, shaping up the way it was intended when we think back to how the vote went down, what folks were expecting? Yeah, wow. Well, there's the there's I think what was intended and what actually occurred. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, you know, the not necessarily what was intended, but I think the process that uh, that Representative Egoff uh, was able to, you know, facilitate, uh, I think has brought about, uh, you know, it brought about 15 very strong candidates, now nine very strong candidates. So from that perspective, I think that process worked uh, to, you know, to really develop um, you know, some some people who really have, you know, their wherewithal with respect to energy issues, uh, environment, uh, FERC, uh, and all the different aspects of the industry. Uh, and I think who have some good knowledge of different aspects of New Mexico, not the entire state of New Mexico, I think that has been brought up uh, by many. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, I think that the initial process has been successful. Tom, let me ask you this, um, just real quick. How do we know, that, or in your opinion, that they are strong candidates? Meaning, was there a list of attributes we were looking for for all of these nominees that the checklist has basically been checked off? No, I, and that's that's just it. You know, there yeah. weren't any necessarily job qualifications. There were intentions as far as, you know, there was a, and there was an actual document, I believe, that actually listed, you know, the types of right. uh, things that needed to be included. But for the most part, you know, I. Uh, there's, and sometimes in different processes, you have what's listed and then there's what's wanted. Sure. And I think that this process uh, checked the box of what was listed and then brought about the candidates that were wanted. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I know I got an interesting question here. One notable name left off the final list of nine nominees was current PRC commissioner, Cynthia, Cynthia, Cynthia Hall. Sorry about that, Cynthia. Interview with Source New Mexico, Ms. Hall said her experience would have been valuable. Uh, your columnist at your uh, newspaper, Simon uh, Milan Simonich, had a great column this week about this very issue. Was the idea to just have a clean start no matter who was on the, on the PRC beforehand? Or are we missing something when it comes to institutional knowledge and an independent thinker as Ms. Hall proved herself to be? That's a very good point. I do think they wanted a clean start because one of the reasons the constitutional amendment was presented to begin with, mm -hmm. which was to move from elected to appointed, is this the idea that by joining the vast majority of states, which also appoint the regulatory commissions, mm -hmm. we would leave something that's been kind of messy and controversial behind. Um, and even though I think the current PRC has done a good job in terms of being scandal free, working hard, you know, a really diligent body. Um, if you go back to the days of the Corporation Commission, if you go through the PRC, every three years there's a new explosion of embarrassment. Right. And I think they did want to maybe start over. And who knows in the interviews what they found in someone's qualifications that made them think, well, this person's going to be better. Now, obviously, Cynthia Hall is eminently qualified to be on the PRC and why they didn't include her along the way. We could only know if we could get inside the brains of the, the people doing the interviews. Mm -hmm. 
Um, your columnists sort of surmised it might have been because of her votes, tough votes on PNM and other things that might have yeah. become political <laughs> without her well, even. What, you know. I mean, apart from political, one of the things we had an interesting uh, my view today in the paper by someone named Glenn Lyons, mm -hmm. who was also an applicant and didn't make it all the way to the finalist, and he said, this is a great group of people. I think you guys have done a good job. So even though I'm not one of them, I think this is going to be great. Mm -hmm. And he, he has said, and what I've heard from PNM and other people who are regulated and also from you know consumers, is that you need a PRC that is predictable. Whichever way it goes, it's almost not as important whether they're one way or the other way. You have to know that if they promise Facebook they're going to do X, mm -hmm. that they don't change their mind and then say, no, we're going to do Y now. Mm -hmm. you know, so I here. think that's part of it is it's not just it sounds great. We took a tough vote. Well, you took a tough vote and then you changed your mind yep. a year later and no one knows what you're doing. And I think they need a predictable PRC that you don't always know what they're going to do, but they make sense. Mm -hmm. um, Algernon, another interesting wrinkle here is native representation has been a concern from the start of this process, no doubt. Ron Lovato, former two-term governor of OK Owinge, a member of the nominating committee, and one of the nine nominees is Joseph Little. He's an attorney from Mescalero Apache Tribe. He's got experience in water rights and tribal governments, of course. Uh, you know, is Mr. Little's perspective necessary on the PRC, or it doesn't have to be him or her, just some kind of native uh, uh, perspective on the PRC. Is that a necessary thing we have to have at this point? Without question, Mr. Yeah. Little has perspective that is of value. But I think another thing here is we have to talk about trust in the body, public trust in the body. Right. And, you know, with the constitutional change, we're not we're not taking the politics out of the process. Mm -hmm. We're just shifting the way the politics work when we have an appointed body rather than uh, an elected body. Uh, when you have PRC members running campaigns, certain issues dominate and certain issues get neglected. The PRC has a broad portfolio. They don't just regulate utility companies. They, they, they have a broad portfolio of services mm -hmm. and, and things that they regulate. Mm -hmm. And so by making it an appointed body, you're shifting the way the politics work. But we, we get not only into the necessity of Native American representation, but we also have to, I think people who look like me sometimes assume that there is a Native American perspective, but we have, what is it, 23 uh, you know, nations and pueblos mm -hmm. in this state, mm -hmm. and, and they don't all have the same view and views and same opinions. And mm -hmm. so now we start to have a conversation about which tribe, which pueblo, right. which which nation uh, needs to be representative on the body. And so you're just changing the way the politics work. You're not taking politics out of the process. That's a fair point right there. Uh, especially uh, to Buttress Algernon's point there, we only have three. You can't really spread the sort of geography and everything, all the backgrounds amongst just three instead of five. Tom, um, is it controversy, got to get into this, over outgoing House Speaker Brian Egolf's involvement in the nominating committee late last week. The ethics, State Ethics Commission found Egolf was in violation of the state law and the state constitution when he nominated himself for the committee. Does that finding call or call into the legitimacy of the process into question here? 
Uh, I don't think it, uh, I mean, if the process was flawed, then I think that, you know, we'd have reason to, you know, jump in and criticize the process. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, uh, Representative Egoff, and the reason I'm saying representative as opposed to Speaker of the House is because he's in this role as representative. Mm -hmm. um, he, he was the one who really ran the process. And it was, a, you know, by people who watched uh, you know, by, you know, people said that he did a very good job. So from that perspective, I, you know, I think he, you know, there was no problem with, uh, you know, the, what he did in his role, what, where it comes into issue is, is the governmental conduct act and just the ethics in that, which is why representative Miguel Garcia, uh, was really upset over, you know, the, you know, representative Egoff appointing himself to the, to that particular uh, board. And I think he was equally as upset with the ethics commission for just reaching an agreement with the representative Egoff, as opposed to doing a full investigation. And I think that the ethics, uh, the ethics uh, team did, did the right thing as far as, you know, Hey, let's work this out. I don't think there's a need for a huge investigation. Um, you know, people who watch this process on a regular basis, you know, kind of scratched their heads when, when we all saw the appointment, but we all kind of knew at that point that he was, had already acknowledged that he wasn't going to be running again. Mm -hmm. So, you know, uh, I, it, it was just a unfortunate, um, you know, uh, sub, you know, subtitle to this whole kind of narrative, so oh, yeah. to speak. Inez, let me ask you this about Mr. Egoff, though, but he resigned from the nominating panel pretty soon after voting on the finalists. I, I just something about that just doesn't sit. You know, and don't forget, uh, you know, that same day, the lawyer of the State Ethics Commission finally made that preliminary decision on the uh, situation uh, Tom just mentioned from Mr. Garcia. And we have that uh, from the commission. We'll put that up on our website uh, a little bit later today. But Inez, I have to ask again, did Mr. Egoff take the right approach here and were we served? by this approach? I think that in most cases, it's probably best not to appoint yourself. Um, but I also understand that someone who knows as much as he knows about everything might think, well, I'm just the best guy to do it, so I'm leaving, so why not? And you know, he resigned after the finalists were chosen because the finalists are chosen, his work is done. Mm -hmm. um, in, a, in a perfect world, there would have been somebody else that he would have picked and we wouldn't be having this discussion. But does it make it seem, Algernon, just a quick a couple seconds here, that this thing is political? When you have a political person nominating himself and then resigning on his own as well, you know what I mean? It's just a, it just doesn't feel right if you're looking at, if you're looking for a political problem here. Exactly right, and that's why the government, you know, that's why we have the the, the Conduct Act, right? And mm -hmm. and uh, and hopefully, you know, now we have this independent body, the State Ethics Commission, that mm -hmm. can step in and say this is about what the law says. It's not about the politics. But uh, the timing of it was such that Representative Egolf was able to just say, well, okay, our work is done anyway, and, mm -hmm. uh, and leave without going through the process. It was very Santa Fe, as they say. Thank you to Gene and the panel for their thoughts on the PRC nominations. We'll be following that process in the coming weeks. This past week on the show, our panelists also took up a new proposal from Albuquerque City Councilors that would change the bus system's zero fare program. It would make it a crime to ride without paying or showing a pass. The only way to ride for free under this proposal would be to present a photo ID. Here are Gene and the panel once more. I'm going to start with Tom here. This zero fare program has been in effect for less than one year. Is this push by city councilors to change the program premature? What, what's 
prompted all of this because everyone seemed gung-ho for this not that long ago. Yeah, I think it's a uh, lack of uh, really usable information is uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> at least people using reliable information. Uh, you know, I think that I like the idea. I like the, you know, I, I think the zero fare program is a good program. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it really provides a great need and exposes more people to, you know, the, the concept of public transportation out in the West. I think the reason it's been coming under scrutiny is because, you know, pe some people are um, have really made an, a, uh, a huge issue or a very, you know, limited uh, items as far as crime is concerned. Mm -hmm. Uh, and just because there are a few isolated incidents, all of a sudden it becomes a public safety issue. Right. And so I think that, you know, that that is truly the driver of this particular issue at this point in time. Mm -hmm. um, Inez, uh, we've heard from opponents of a similar issue providing some form of ID to vote. <laughs> we all know about this. You know, the idea there is such measures would place a barrier in front of minorities and lower class residents. Now, in this case, Adding that ID requirement to ride would also impact undocumented citizens who need public transportation. Does this proposal kind of, you know, in, you know, fold in all those different elements of our society with this idea of this goal of zero fare? I think that uh, if you're going to make the bus ride free, it's free. And you don't put up a barrier against people who might not have the government issued idea that you're supposed to have. Mm -hmm. And especially one of the goals of the zero fare uh, nationwide movement is that poor people who don't have cars still have to spend more of their income on transportation because they have to pay bus fares and, yeah. you know, all the different things they, they use it for. And if you want them to put money in their pocket to buy food or pay their rent, they don't have to pay transportation. Mm -hmm. So making it harder is just, you know, honestly, it's stupid. And that Albuquerque is turning into a place that wants to criminalize being poor is, is not a good look. Mm -hmm. Even if you say, let's have a bus, you have to have a pass. Even if you did that, to then make it a misdemeanor to not present the pass is just adding one more layer of, of ridiculousness. The jails there are overcrowded, yeah. the, the courts are full, the cops are busy doing other things. And I will bet you, I don't know what, but you can imagine a, a, a homeless person getting shot on the bus if, the, if this goes in like this. Mm -hmm. And I, I just either charge them because you think people should pay to ride the bus, that's a legitimate policy decision, or say we're gonna go free and we're gonna make it free. And if some middle-class person doesn't wanna sit next to a homeless person, they can get up and sit down the other, other end. Yeah, I love you for that. Thank you, absolutely. Elginon, I gotta ask you in your part of the world, you're down in Deming, of course, the South Central Regional Transit Authority in Doña Ana County outside of Las Cruces, as you know, eliminated fares from April to Labor Day this year. And as a result, they noted a 15% ridership increase. Isn't that the goal of these programs? I, I mean, <laughs> it's interesting. Did that settled the issue for you? Well, yeah. yeah. So, so we have this, we have this indefinite trial period mm -hmm. to see how this works. And part of it is to see how much the demand increases and what the expense will be. This involves not only regular ridership, but the city's dial-a-ride service, which is a home-to-destination service that is provided for people who are, say, homebound, wheelchair-bound. They they have, uh, you know, they they need that service. Mm -hmm. That's a much more expensive service, but it's a federal requirement that if you know the regular riders ride for free, the dial-a-ride folks also have to ride for free, and so. 
I'm, I'm, I'm nervous. I'm watching what happens in Las Cruces because I know from the over the past year or so, um, the unhoused populations have become kind of a target of the political right. uh, sphere, and they've been presented as a public safety threat. And any space where people might encounter the unhoused gets stigmatized as being less safe. And so. I'm, I'm hoping that that doesn't jeopardize the trial of this zero fare because ridership will go up. And that's that's exactly what we need. We need to cut down on the emissions. We need to also just cut down on how expensive it is to be poor. Mm-hmm. Tom, I want to circle back to something you mentioned. We've got to color a little bit more, and that is the issue of crime on the buses in the reporting uh, for folks at home, the council in 2021 asked for a report on this very issue of security incidents. So in the first half of the year, there were 135 transit-related incidents, according to the data shared with the council. But left out of the council's discussion is there was 1,900,000 boardings or individual rides throughout the system. That means those incidents accounted for less than 1% of all rides. But this is all we hear about is crime on the bus. It's, what am I missing here? Some kind of disconnection well, here. Yeah, oh, it's, it, it is a huge disconnect. Uh, and, you know, Source New Mexico uh, blog was the one who actually compiled a lot of that data. So a great shout out to them. Yep. Um, yep. With respect to, you know, uh, media in general, because they are, the media is what is shaping these particular issues at times, uh, there's just not an opportunity to really dig into this level of detail, especially on the television side, newspaper side, yes. Uh, but in a in a world of sound bites mm-hmm. and uh, you know thirty second stories, fifteen second uh, you know newsers, uh, broadcast does not provide the opportunity to go deep on different issues. So as a result, sometimes uh, the people who are being interviewed have the opportunity to shape uh, an argument to suit to suit their particular position. Well, they've won this one because I'm telling you right now, of those 135 incidents, Inez, only 32 occurred on the bus. 32 out of a million nine rides. Where's the sense of all this? How can we make rational decisions if we're going to be not going to be rational about crime here? I think that um, the reality is that crime in America peaked in the late 90s, as we all know. Mm -hmm. And even though it has risen in recent years, it is not as bad as it was then, for the most part, except with, I think, a few instances depending on on the area of of the city or state um but we're afraid i mean when you have television stations that lead with crime all the time Mm -hmm. and when you have personal experiences i mean people have a right to be nervous because you know their car gets stolen out of the the driveway things happen to them it happens to their friends it makes it makes sense that, that they're uncomfortable but anecdotal evidence isn't the same as reality and we're living in in an anecdotal world where what happened to our friend becomes the reality for everybody and Mm -hmm. and if you ride on the bus and you see someone you know shoplifting in the corner not shoplifting but stealing someone's purse all of a sudden you think it's not safe for everyone Mm -hmm. so i think we have to step back and actually what albuquerque should do i hope is look at those instances see who's actually doing them and really say, sounds like the buses are one of the more safe places in the city, honestly, mm-hmm. when, you, when you look at that less than 1%. You know, there's being called, uh, Algernon, a hyperbolic narrative of crime, quote unquote, that's kind of ruling the day here. But we must add, most riders in Albuquerque are African-American or Latino. 
So it's easy to do this, isn't it, when it's just minority people and talking about crime? Just something seems very obvious here, <laughs> unless I'm missing something. Yes, and it's been weaponized. Mm -hmm. We just got through a political cycle where uh, that's that so-called hyperbolic uh, narrative about crime is uh, is was was prevalent throughout that campaign and and made a difference in some of the campaigns down here in in you know I live in a city in Deming where I recently took over our newspaper and people have been really anxious about the fact that we don't have blotter style crime reporting anymore, which emphasizes the arrests rather than the whole process and exonerations and mm -hmm. plea agreements and mm -hmm. things like that. And that's because there's just the sense that there must be this terrible danger in my community. And so I think that using these things in our politics this way really is actually bad for public safety because people withdraw from public spaces yeah. where you know, these shared things like libraries and buses, these really sort of safe anodyne municipal spaces that we share together um, become viewed as dangerous because we might be exposed to somebody who's different. We might see a homeless person. We might see somebody who has a different, you know, you know, has a different skin color, has a different mm -hmm. ethnic background than me. And that makes me uncomfortable. And we equate that somehow with being less safe. Yeah. Exactly right. And a reminder to the folks at home, that decision looms as councils recently voted to remove all references to safe outdoor spaces within the city's zoning code. All kinds of things going on when it comes to homeless, people of color. We're trying. All right. Thanks again to our line panel as always this week. Be sure to let us know what you think about any of the topics our line covered on our Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram pages. And catch any episode you may have missed on the PBS video app on your Roku or smart TV. Obviously, our panelists had some pretty strong feelings on that last topic, and so did Gene. Every week, Gene gives his final thoughts on a key news item in the state. This past week, he took aim at Albuquerque Council and their recent action on homelessness and that zero fare program. Here's Gene. Any other close watchers of the Albuquerque City Council had enough whiplash yet? The go, no-go nature of the council is frankly getting old. Full-throated support for votes and progress seemingly never stand the test of voter reaction. A great idea in June is toast by August. There has likely never been a city council in modern Albuquerque history who has botched, fumbled, pooched, or any other way you want to describe it, so many issues in one year. At this point, one can imagine voters turning off to the process. How can policies go from voting in enthusiastic affirmative votes to permanently banned by statute in less than six months. Governance is currently backwards at council. Take a tough vote, then ask your constituents afterwards instead of the other way around. Bus fares, homeless encampments, stadiums, downtown, you name it, all eventually drowned out by the sound of gears grinding into reverse. One of my best bosses ever used to say, politicians do one of two and two things only, nothing and overreact. That is city council right now. The overreaction to citizen complaints to tough votes has got to stop because we're at a point in council where any vote is now suspect. If it's a process problem, they need to fix it. If the problem is spineless council members who blow with the wind, voters have a way of fixing that problem as well. Thanks again for joining us and for staying informed and engaged. We'll see you again next week in Focus.
Thank you to Gene for his work as always, and thank you to our panelists for their contributions. These are topics we'll be following closely in the final months of 2022 and leading into 2023. Of course, thank you for listening to the podcast. If you like the show, check out New Mexico in Focus Friday nights at 7 o'clock on NMPBS. If that doesn't work for you, we always repost the show on our YouTube channel so you can watch it there. The individual segments are posted there too, so you can watch them whenever you have time. Also, keep an eye out on our social media pages, that's Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, for updates throughout the week and for previews leading up to our show on Friday nights. Thanks again, everyone. I'm senior producer Lou DeVizio. For Monday, December 12th, 2022, this is New Mexico in Focus, the podcast. Have a great week, everyone. Thank you.